Jonathan Romain is a rabbi who lives and works in Maidenhead. Jonathan is an advocate for assisted dying, and he explains to Michael Barclay why he came to this decision. Jonathan also talks about his motivation for helping Ukrainian refugees. I mentioned when we started, Jonathan, that you've become an outspoken advocate of assisted dying. And I think this was directly because of a personal experience you had. Yes, as a minister of religion, I do a lot of visits to hospitals and hospices. And, of course, they do wonderful work to try and look after people. But there comes a point where some people just who just are in so much pain or distress that they want to give up. And hospitals and hospitals aren't allowed to, to let them do that. And there was one particular day when I, I went to visit somebody and he was literally on his bed, on his knees, uh, and, and in complete agony. And, and I just thought, this, this can't be right. And therefore, after sort of... And, and this was a culmination of seeing such people. And I thought that, that it must be right that if somebody is terminally ill, in other words, they are dying already, not like in their 40s having a depression and a bad moment, but actually dying, they've only got a few weeks or even a couple of months left to go, um, and they're in pain, and they wish to let go of their life, and they are com mentally competent, so not dementia, but mentally competent, able to make a decision, then why not allow them to do so? And therefore I joined the Assisted Dying uh, Movement, which is Dignity in Dying. In fact, I'm the, uh, the Vice Chair of Dignity in Dying. And it seems to me, both as a human being, but also from a religious perspective, it is the right thing to do, because, or the right thing to allow people that choice, because there's nothing sacred about suffering, there's nothing holy about agony. And if people want to let go of life and say to God, thank you very much, but it's time to call an end, then why not? We know from opinion polls that most of the population agree with your view that assisted dying should be legal in some circumstances, but religious leaders of virtually all the faiths are against it, as indeed are other Jewish leaders. So you're really out on a limb because they say this is for God to choose, not for us. Yes, and that is, to be honest, the traditional view. So I'm in a minority. I would say a growing minority. And there's uh, clearly a disconnect between the religious hierarchy and perhaps the uh, religious community uh, uh, at large. And it's certainly true that until now, uh, suicide has been seen as the great no-no and thou shalt not. It's only in uh, God's hands. But, you know, there's that lovely verse in Ecclesiastes where it says a time for this and a time for that and a time to be born and a time to die. What's interesting is it doesn't say who chooses, and maybe it should be us. What does it feel like uh, to be in a minority, to go against the majority view in your own religion? Oh, it's not pleasant, and uh, I, I never deliberately caught controversy, and in many ways I'm a sort of uh, a normal congregational rabbi and do sort of most things that an ordinary rabbi or vicar will do, whether it's a hatch match and dispatch or leading services and educating children and adults. Um, but there are particular causes which I do feel very strongly about, and I, I just feel impelled, as almost part of the sort of prophetic tradition, that these are the things that, however unpopular, need to be said. One of the pieces of music which I think helps you to keep going when you're under fire, if you like, is the uh, music from Chariots of Fire. 
Oh, yes. This, oh, I mean, I was blown away by when I saw the film, partly because of the content of this tenacity, the effort, the courage, the aspiration, and ultimately the triumph of the runners, and particularly Harold Abrahams, who was a Jewish student, who then went on, despite quite a lot of prejudice, to win the gold in the 100 metres. And we're talking about the music by Vangelis. And to be honest, if ever I'm feeling down, then that's what I'll listen to. Music from the soundtrack to Chariots of Fire by Vangelis, who indeed graced our studio on one occasion and contributed his private passions. You mentioned anti-Semitism just now, Jonathan Romain, and we were talking in a historical context. But of course, anti-Semitism is still very much alive. And I wonder how much you've been aware of that in your lifetime and especially recently. Well, when I was a child, I experienced it historically from knowing about my family history and my mother coming here from Nazi Germany when she was uh, on the Kindertransport in 1939. And I've always been grateful to Britain for giving that hospitality. At school, I got bullied a little bit, uh, not a lot, but because I was Jewish, it was just... Uh, and and I actually, I sort of almost grew up with a sort of acceptance of a latent anti-Semitism, and that I was different in that respect. Uh, for a lot of Jews, unfortunately, is true. They're sort of used to being a little bit different, and there's always going to be somebody who, if they don't punch you in the nose, they will certainly make an unpleasant remark. And you, you learn to live with that, because people are, can be unpleasant. I'm pleased to say that, actually, in Maidenhead, which is where I'm working at the synagogue, that's extraordinarily rare. In fact, after 9-11 occurred, I went to the mosque and said a prayer for peace in Hebrew in the mosque, and the imam came back to the synagogue and said a prayer for peace in Arabic. Um, uh, they didn't change the world, but there are many parts of the country who got shot for that. I mentioned also at the beginning your work with Ukrainian refugees. I know that's taken a huge amount of your time, but how did that start and how is it continuing? Well, when Putin started massing his troops on the border, it seemed to be quite obvious he was going to invade. And I contacted a number of charities and said, look, when this happens, I'd like to host anybody and uh, a refugee. And they said, oh, well, let's wait and see. And that seemed to me daft, you know, don't wait and see, act and be ready. And so I set up what was initially called Ukraine Transport to help based partly on the Kinders transport, which had rescued my own mother in 1939. And it was partly a sort of humanitarian response and partly a, an awareness of, of what had happened back then, and now it's the sort of turn of my generations to step up to the mark. And since then, um, I founded a charity called Open Arms, which is involving hosting, but also teaching Ukrainians English lessons, and also uh, we, we give them bicycles. <laughs> that, it's, it seems a simple thing, but it's enormously important because it allows them to get around... Yes. Uh, whether it's the kids to get to school or the people to get to work or, or, or shopping or whatever, and it takes the burden off their hosts, who are already doing a lot from having to show for them as well. And everyone's got a bike in their shed and their garage, and, and we've been sort of collecting them and uh, redistributing them. So that must be very satisfying for you to do something in return for what people did for your mother. 
Yes, I mean, as I say, it's a mixture of both my own personal history, but just responding on a humanitarian level. And yes, I, I do see myself as almost sort of completing the circle. To everything, turn, 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 there is a season, turn, 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 and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. To everything, turn, 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 there is a season, turn, 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 and a time for every purpose. Under heaven A time to build up A time to break down A time to dance A time to mourn A time to cast away stones A time to gather Stones together To everything Turn, turn, turn There is a season Turn, turn, turn and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time of love, a time of hate, a time of war, a time of peace, a time you may embrace, a time to refrain. From embracing to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to gain, a time to lose, a time to rend, a time to sow, a time of love, a time of hate. A time of peace, I swear it's not too late To everything, turn, turn, turn There is a season, turn, turn, turn And a time to every purpose under heaven To everything, turn, turn, turn there is a season, turn, 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven. Malcolm Geit has written a, a series of poems based on some of George Herbert's poetic themes. This week we hear Malcolm reading his sonnet about bliss, and it's followed by the choir boys singing In Paradisum. From Foray's Requiem. Bliss. Softness and peace and joy and love and bliss. Love made this way and lifts us up each stair. Our maker knows that we were made for this, the utter bliss that heaven loves to share. We glimpse it sometimes in another's eyes. We taste it sometimes on the tongues of prayer. It takes us wholly, takes us by surprise, but grasping it 
Our arms clasp empty air. Our bliss has vanished with a word of promise, a sweet come-hither wave that offers more. Each ecstasy has been a farewell kiss that left us weeping on the hither shore. Yet every passing moment whispers this, Eternity shall love us into bliss. Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today we hear the final episode of Moses' journey to the Promised Land. This is Moses from Mount Nebo, the top of which we call Pisgah. This will be my last meeting with you. God has revealed to me that it's time for me to, or to die. I suppose there are only two things a person must inevitably accomplish, and one of them has already happened. That's to be born and to die. 
What's important is what we do with the time span between those two events. If you are so blessed to give the last words to people you'll leave behind, what would your words be? After assembling all the children of Israel, these were mine. I am 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail or forsake you. And the Lord had chosen Joshua to take over leading the Israelites, so he commanded Joshua and I to be present at the tent of meeting. And these were his words. Behold, Moses, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. So I wrote my last psalm and sang it to the people of Israel. Most men give their last words to those he loves on what we would call the deathbed. Yet here I am, singing at the top of my lungs in front of the entire nation assembled before me. Well, after that, I took my final leave of the children of Israel and went to the top of Pisgah, which is part of Mount Nebo. On that mountaintop, the Lord showed me all the land, from Gilead as far as the land of Dan, all of Naphtali and the plain of Jericho, up to the city of palm trees of Zoar. My life ended there, as the Lord said. This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Now, it may seem to you that this was a harsh action from the Lord to not allow me to go into what I've worked so hard for others to partake of. But if you see it that way, you've missed the point. To be in God's salvation plan is the highest honor that a man could ever have. 
The Lord allowed me to see the success of all I'd worked for these years in the desert. Let's go further. Is it not more blessed and faith-filled to obey the Lord's commands irrespective of being allowed to see the ending? Another thing. You may have noticed that I, Moses, who am speaking to you, have crossed over from life to death. But the dialogue continues. I am, in fact, by your terms, dead. But I'm still speaking, which brings me to another point. When you reach your Mount Nebo, where will you be? And will you still speak? I sincerely hope so, because if not, what's the point? This comes from God's Holy Bible, Deuteronomy chapters 31 to 34. was Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland for 10 years until she retired last Easter. Today she talks about believing. Now believing in someone can seem like an easy ask until it demands something more than lip service. There's a story from the mid-1800s about an amazing tightrope walker called the Great Blondin. Blondin is reported to have performed all sorts of amazing feats. On the 30th of June, 1859, when people heard he was going to walk across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope, about 25,000 arrived by train and steamer to spread out along the banks on the American and Canadian sides to get the best view. But what set Blondin apart from all the other tightrope walkers that attempted this is that he knew how to engage with the crowds who came to watch him. Blondin would ask those who came to see his amazing feats, do you believe that I, the great Blondin, can successfully cross high above the river on a tightrope? 
and the crowd would yell back, we believe, and Blondin would walk across the rope. Then he would ask, do you believe that I, the great Blondin, can again cross over the Niagara River on this tightrope, blindfolded? And the crowd would cheer and they would shout, we believe. And that sort of routine would continue in a sack, pushing a wheelbarrow, until finally Blondin would ask, do you believe that I, the great Blondin, can successfully cross over the Niagara River on this tightrope with a man on my back? And by this point, the crowd was ready to believe anything. And so they would shout, we believe. And Blondin would wait for the shouts to die down. And then he would ask, who wants to go first? And there would be silence. But on one occasion, the feat was performed as Blondin carried his manager, Harry Colcord, across on his back. You see, there's believing and then there's believing. There's a believing that something is possible and there's a believing that requires taking a risk and trusting our very lives. Believing in Jesus is more than just believing that he existed or even that he was a great teacher. Believing in Jesus is about a relationship and all relationships have to be nurtured each and every day. It's about getting to know someone, accepting who they are and what they are about. That's how trust grows. That's the work of believing. So the question then for you and for me is the same one that Blondin would ask the crowds, do you believe? 